Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be in verses 27 to 31 this morning. So Matthew 27, 27 to 31 is where we're going to be. Uh, we have seen throughout the, the gospel of Matthew a uh, number of times now. We have seen um, the kind of praise that Jesus is due. We've seen him lifted up on high and glimpses of his majesty. We've seen him open the eyes of the blind as he's gone through village after village and, and healed people and cast out demons and all kinds of things. He's, he's opened the eyes of the blind. He's healed the sick. He's multiplied bread for people, uh, for 5,000 people and more. Uh, he's attracted crowds that praise him as the Messiah. Not long ago, we saw him come into town on a donkey and People were throwing their cloaks and their palm branches in front of him and, and hailing him as the Messiah. That's all the praise that he is due. We know, as we've read through this gospel, or any gospel for that matter, or any part of the Bible, you really know what praise that he is due, what praise we should give to him. Well, this morning, we're going to see all of the colors of praise presented to Jesus in reverse. It's colors of praise praise, but it's flipped on its head. So let's look at that in Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Let's, let's pray over this text. Heavenly Father, we know that this story has been played out many times before us. We've We've read it a number of times. Maybe even the story of the crucifixion, the trial, the suffering, as we will read over the coming weeks, maybe it's even grown stale for us as we've read it and heard it so many times. I pray that that wouldn't be the case this morning or any week after this, that as we read this account of Jesus' suffering, that we would be able to read it with fresh eyes, fresh hearts, fresh minds. I pray that through your spirit you would open our eyes and minds and hearts to understand what's written on the pages, to see it with our eyes, to understand it with our mind, and to truly understand it with our hearts as we wrestle with applying this to our, our own life and what it means for us now. Would you give us help in that regard, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a few years now, and we've seen over and over that Matthew is establishing Jesus as king. That's, that's the main theme that Matthew is trying to accomplish over and over and over again. He's telling us that Jesus is king. He's showing us the kingdom that he's, he's bringing, what that really means. He's showing us what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. He shows us the citizens that he's coming to save. He kind of outlines them, defines them. He tells us 
who's not going to be in the kingdom, who is going to be in the kingdom, all kinds of things related to the kingdom. And so it's not a surprise to us that when we open the Gospel of Matthew, the very first thing that we come across is a genealogy. And Matthew's very open about this. From the first pages of the Scripture, he traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And on his way back to Abraham, he goes straight through David. It's no shock that a Jew traces his ancestry back to Abraham. That's not a surprise to most people. What is a surprise is that he actually traces it straight through the lineage of David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, and so on. And all of that that Matthew does there is meant to tell us he is the rightful heir to the throne. We have him. If you've lost track, if you've not been keeping count, first century Jew, you have him right here. This is who he is. It's Jesus. And you'll remember that right after that genealogy, it appears that Mary is with child and she's engaged to a man or betrothed to a man named Joseph. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he decides that he's going to divorce her because he thinks that it was part of the natural occurrence of events that would happen and that Mary is a sinful person and he's going to just divorce her privately And when he, when he discovers that she's pregnant. But then what happens to Joseph is that an angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason that that passage is important, and it follows right on the heels of the genealogy, is because it not only tells us that Jesus is of the line of David and that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David, but it tells us what kind of king he actually is. Joseph is of the line of David, but Jesus is different than Joseph. Because Jesus, the kind of king that he is, he is the Messiah king. He's the one who is actually coming to save his people from their sins. So in chapter 1, Matthew is open. Jesus is of the line of David. He's the right flair to the throne. But he's also a different kind of king than the ones that have come before him. He's the one that's coming to save his people from their sins. Well, what happens in the passage right after that? We're not going to go through the entire book of Matthew this way, trust me. All right. But what happens in the very next passage, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, what happens in the very next passage right after that? In chapter 2, the Magi come in from the east, and they come to ask Herod in Jerusalem. They have the nerve to ask Herod even in Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, you may remember that Herod had actually been given the name king of the Jews, by Rome. That was an official title handed down from Caesar himself, given to Herod, king of the Jews. And so these wise men come from the east, and they have the nerve to ask, who's the one that took your title? And so Herod naturally gets really angry about this, but he plays it cool. And he tells them, hey, when you figure out where he is, why don't you go figure out, and when you figure out where he is, why don't you come tell me so that, you know, I can, I can give him a little bit of praise on my own, so that I can take care of him and give, give praise to him. And so the Magi go and find him. And then we hear what it says when they, they get there in chapter 2, verses 10, verse 10 to 12, he says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then we find out that Herod learns of their trickery, and he gets really mad about this. And in verse 16 it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, as we've gone through this gospel, I have reiterated Matthew's retelling of this gospel 75 times, if I've told you once, what the story that Matthew is laying out is. Probably ad nauseum. Probably to the point where you're like, we've heard all this, let's get to the real stuff. But the reason that I tell you all that, and we rehearse it so much, is not merely for your memory. But because we're taking this in slow chunks, we have to remember that Matthew is a great storyteller too. He's crafting for you a a story that's compelling, that, that helps you to see the truth of Christ. And as such, he has opened themes early on in the book that it does us well to rehearse and remember throughout Because now here in the end of the gospel, he's going to make it all pay off. And the more we remember all of those little threads and those storylines that he's opened up even very early on in the gospel, the more it helps us to understand what he's doing here at the end and how he's bringing those narrative elements all the way to fruition here at the end of the story. And so you have to hold those in your mind in order for them to pack the kind of punch that is desired. Now, some time has passed since the Magi have seen the light of the Messiah and have gone in and worshipped Him, the one who has been born King of the Jews. The search party right after that that went out on behalf of Herod was sent to find Him. And what did they find? I have no doubt that they killed children of some sort. They killed a lot of children, probably, two years of age and under. In that area, who knows? Maybe 10, 12, 15, I don't know how many children they killed. But they killed children, this search party. But the point is that they came up empty. They didn't find the one that they were looking for, did they? Well, as we saw last week, when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate and before the rest of the Jews, the characters at the end of the book have been swapped out. Instead of early on in the book, it's Herod, and the Jewish leaders and that are summoning a search party to go out and kill the Messiah and then eventually come up empty. Now we have Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders. And instead of an unidentified search party going out and looking for their man, they have sent out Roman soldiers, legitimate Roman soldiers, who have taken him into custody and are now seeking to punish him. The characters might be different. But what you have to understand about this passage is the, 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 the sentiments of the, of the theme that has been there since the beginning are the same. They have been tracking their man from the beginning of this gospel, and they couldn't quite get a hold of him. But now they have him in their clutches. They finally got their man, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to worship him in the same way 
that Herod was going to worship him when he was talking to the Magi. They're going to do the exact same thing to him that they have been intending since chapter 2. And why are they doing that? Because, as is Matthew's point, he's the king. That's why. Why would you do that? Because he's competition. That's why. That's Matthew's point. That's what he's bringing about. And he's been showing you that since all the way back in chapter 1, when he demonstrated Christ as the king. So when we look at our passage, we have to keep a couple of things in mind from our entire study of the book of Matthew. First is the fact that Jesus is the actual king of the Jews, and that has been Matthew's point since the very beginning of the book. And so that means that there's some sense of irony going on in this passage and the way Matthew is telling it. Here's people that are representing him as king of the Jews, but they don't really mean it. So the first thing we have to understand, Jesus is the true king of the Jews, and Matthew's been trying to prove that to you and to us ever since the very beginning. But the second thing that we have to understand and remember is that Matthew does not want to undermine your confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Does he? No. He wants to bolster it. He wants to aid you in understanding. He wants you, too, to be convinced. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah, and He is the Savior of my sins. So He wants to bolster that mentality. So in showing the behavior of the Roman soldiers, He's not simply telling you this story because He wants you to see what happened. He's not giving you the transcript of a YouTube video that He watched and showing you, yeah, see, this really happened. I'm going to retell the events as they took place. Well, certainly the things that he's telling us are true. We, we understand that. But he's telling you this for the purpose of bolstering your attitude and your confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And so showing you the actions of the Roman soldiers is meant for you to say, well, I don't want to do that. Can you believe that they actually believe this about the Messiah? No, no, we want to go the opposite direction of the Roman soldiers. He's intending to push you in the opposite direction. When I was a kid, there were these commercials on TV, and it, they were very simple. They were like maybe 15 seconds, and, and it would show this girl, and she would have like an egg in her hand, and she would say, this is your brain. And then she would take the egg, and she would throw it against the wall, and it would smash, and she would go, that's your brain on drugs. Any questions? And it was really short, straightforward, to the point. And what was its intention? By showing you this quick, to the point, very graphic depiction, your notion is to walk away from that commercial and go, I don't want to do drugs, right? Matthew's essentially doing the same thing as the reader who's been trying, he's been trying to assure you from the beginning, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king, and now seeing someone engage in false worship Engage in mockery of the king. You've seen him since the beginning open the eyes of the blind. Multiply bread. Are you not to walk away going, oh my goodness, they have no idea what they're doing. This is Jesus, the Messiah. This is Jesus, the Messiah, in the hands of sinful men. Any questions? Right? That's the, what he's putting before us. So it's, it does us well then to consider a couple of things in this passage. First, how, consider how the soldiers respond to Jesus. I think it's, 
it's worth it to just spend a second looking at this paragraph that's written before us, and it, I think it will pay off, I promise. So just look down. Everyone, put your eyes on the actual text. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, or there's one on your phone, I promise. Unlock it. Download it if you have to from the App Store. It'll be worth it and open to this passage. So put your eyes on the text, and I want you to notice that every passage has a parallel. Look at the beginning. It has a parallel to parts in the end of this passage. You see in verse 27, they take Jesus to the governor's headquarters. You see that? Okay. At the end, in verse 31, the very last thing that happens is that they lead him away from the governor's headquarters. They take him in, they lead him away to be crucified. Now look next at verse 28. They strip him of his clothing. Do you see, though, midway through verse 31, that they strip him again? There's, another, there's two strippings in this passage. How about verse 29? They put a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his right hand. But look at what they do in verse 30. They take the same reed from his hand and they beat his head with it. They strike him on the head. So you have both the reed and the head coming back again in a parallel. Each thing in the passage at the beginning has a parallel at the end. You can look up here at me. Each thing in the beginning has a parallel at the end. When they lay a passage out like this, when the biblical writer lays a passage out like this, it's called a chiasm. If you were here on Wednesday night, we talked at length about chiasm. If you weren't here, you missed out, but you can hear a recording. That's fine. You can go do that and join us on Wednesday night. Plug. That would probably help in your biblical understanding. But what we can see in, in the text of Scripture is that sometimes there are whole books that are written this way, where there's things at the beginning that are paralleled in the end. And they bring all of the things back in reverse order of the way that they bring them up. That's what we call a chiasm. There's books that are written this way. Wednesday we saw Isaiah 56 to 66 is written this way. But we even see small paragraphs in Scripture that are written this way. And you might think, well, what's the purpose of them doing that? Why would they write it that way? The purpose is to draw a, a circle around the only element of the paragraph that has no parallel. And it's right there in the middle. And you'll see it in the middle of, I think it's verse 30. It says, And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. That's the point. Do you see this depiction? Hail, King of the Jews. Notice who it is that mocks him. Who is it? It says that it's a, a battalion of Roman soldiers. You might even have a footnote as to how many people that really is. 600 Roman soldiers are gathered around. You understand that? 600 Roman... Just wrap your mind around that for a second. 600 Roman soldiers gathered around one Jewish carpenter. You know, that stick out like a sore thumb? 600 Roman soldiers to beat and mock one essentially Jewish peasant? See, that alone is a mocking portrayal of a king commanding his armies, is it not? But look at what they do to him. First, they strip him naked and beat him. Now, they'll do the same thing when they go to the cross. They'll actually cover him up 
on his way through the streets, he'll have clothes on. But when they get to the cross, they will once again strip him naked. And the reason that they did that was to accommodate the Jewish leadership who had made a deal with Rome that especially on holidays, but when they crucified somebody, they would parade them through the streets with their clothes on to accommodate the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. Whereas normally when they crucified somebody, they would do him, they would do it naked throughout but they would agree to put clothes on him. So that's what they're doing here. But make no mistake about it. When Jesus is beaten, they have him stripped fully naked. The the point is the epitome of embarrassment and humiliation that they want to bring to him. Now they gather things that are nearby to make a mockery of his supposed kingship to just underscore what they really think of it. The Roman soldiers would wear robes that were dyed scarlet red. And so it seems that one of the soldiers has taken off his cloak, or perhaps they had an extra one, and they wrap it around him to emulate the kind of robe that a king would wear. Now, I want to pause here for just a second to say, Matthew calls it a scarlet robe, and both Mark and John call it a purple robe. And I always want to preempt a lot of these questions that would come up, because some people get a little nervous about seeming discrepancies that are there in the Gospels. Well, is it scarlet or is it purple? They're different colors after all. I want you to remember just a few things about this so that we can kind of reconcile these things together. First, I want you to remember that scarlet and purple, when they fade, they fade to very similar colors. All right, very, very close together. Second, I want you to also remember that these people did not have a box of Crayola crayons, uh, 496 of them in there, that had all the different kinds of greens there are. Uh, forest green, there's, there's amber green, maybe, I don't know, emerald green, something, amber, amber, amber green, yeah, light green, pale green, uh, anxious green, mad green, I, what all the rest of the colors, the 586 colors of green there are, shamrock green, who knows, they didn't have that, they just had green, that's all they knew, well that's green and that's green, well this is shamrock green, this is forest green, no, 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 it's just green. All right, so that's another thing, too. But finally, and oddly enough, wouldn't you know, as almost if God himself would do this in history, that we actually have somewhere outside the Bible, in Greek writing, someone else refer to a Roman robe as purple, when in fact the official color of the Roman robe was scarlet. So it seems as though scarlet and purple were interchangeable for describing the robe that the Roman soldiers would wear. Now, enough with the digression, back to the text. So they put this crown of thorns on his head, and the reason they do that is to mock the Loris Nobilis. If you've ever seen a Roman coin, flip over on the back, there's Caesar's head on the back of the coin, or maybe it's on the front, who knows. And he's got those bay leaves that are coming up around his head. This is what they're trying to mock, essentially. They're putting that, that, uh, that uh, crown of thorns on his head, and they're putting a, a makeshift scepter in his right hand. And instead of a scepter, they give him a reed. But then do you see what they do with the reed? They actually take the reed and they beat him on the head with it. They beat him with his own scepter, which is another way of mocking him. I know you know all that. You're used to that story. I want you to just pause for a second and consider the spiritual reality of what's going on here. Here is Jesus who knows each one of these soldiers by name. 
He knows their families. He knows their family history. He knows all the things in their heart that are going on at this very moment. All their fears, all their concerns. Each one of the things that they don't tell anybody else about, he knows all of them. In their mouths, they're using the muscles that he gave them to work up saliva in the glands that he gave them to cast spit on his face. Do you understand that the Bible reiterates that by his will, all things in the universe hold together? The very atoms that make up the bodies of these Roman soldiers are being held together by the will of Jesus. Do you understand what kind of power it takes to restrain the power that he actually has here? You and I can't drive down the road and be cut off in traffic without thinking of what we would do to that person if we had them outside that car. Am I revealing too much? He knows all the things that concern them, things that they never tell anyone. He could blow them away at any moment with all the things that he's capable of. And yet, he sits there silent and takes the beating. Truthfully, we know how Jesus is mocked and how he's beaten. The Bible tells us that. The Gospels tell us that. What we don't know is just how badly he was beaten. Now, we obviously have seen graphic depictions of how he was beaten. We don't really get much of an indication of how badly he was beaten, except in the verse following this passage, we see that he cannot carry his own cross. So that may give some indication of just how badly he was beaten. Today, there's a place you can visit in Jerusalem called the Lithostrotos. Uh, Lith I'm going to butcher this if I don't slow down. Lithostrotos, which basically means pavement stone. All right? It's a fancy word for it. But that's what it's called. And it's, it's a spot where they believe Jesus was taken when he was actually beaten. And it's underneath this sort of church that sort of preserves the grounds, as it were. And so you kind of go underground to the original street level where you're looking at this. And on the floor of the Lithostrotos is this carving that is kind of a circle. It sort of looks like a, almost like a pie that's etched in stone. And what they believe that this is, is a depiction of something called the king's game, which is what Roman soldiers would actually take dice, and they would take prisoners there, they would chain them up, and they would roll the dice on this etched stone on the floor. And whatever the dice landed on is what they would do to the prisoner that, is, that they're standing around. Now, we don't know whether or not Jesus was taken to this spot. We don't even know whether this game was played with Jesus, although we do have that etched in the stone as a, almost a perfect preservation of early Roman torture scenes. Whether or not that was used on Jesus, we don't know, but the point is that his torturers are not known for their kindness or their mercy. Right? They're known for their brutality. They're known for nothing going on on the inside when they've got a prisoner standing there in front of them. So there's every reason to believe that he would have been severely weakened by this beating and so weak that he couldn't carry his own cross. But the culminating event in this scene 
occurs right in the middle with no parallel where the Roman battalion kneels before the true king of the Jews and the king of all creation even and mockingly say, Hail, king of the Jews. As I mentioned last week, the scene that plays out in Jesus' crucifixion is laden with with irony all throughout the Gospels. It's just irony after irony after irony that keeps coming up. But if you can imagine for just a second, the kind of tribute that Jesus is receiving right here from the Roman soldiers is the kind of tribute he came to get. That sounds really weird, but you need to think about it. The kind of tribute that he's getting from the Roman soldiers right here is the kind of tribute he intended to get from them. Do you understand that? This is the reason he came. He came for this very purpose, to die. There's a scene back towards the beginning of Matthew where the devil takes Jesus up on a high hill and he sees the kingdoms of the world and the devil tempts him and says, all of these kingdoms are yours if you bow down and worship me. The the temptation there is to shortcut the cross and to actually gain the worship and adoration of all the nations of the world. Here, they're mockingly giving it to him. The temptation there is to shortcut the cross, not have to go through any of this, and Jesus refuses it. Why does he refuse that kind of temptation? Why does he refuse getting their worship and adoration? Because he actually came to get this kind of worship and adoration, the mocking kind first. He actually came to accomplish this very purpose. And through this, he will actually gain the true praise and adoration of his people. He didn't come to be that kind of a king that the devil offers him. He came to be a suffering servant and to die on behalf of his people. So what he's gaining here out of the Roman cohort, this Roman group that's standing around him, is exactly what he came for. It's laden with irony. An earthly king or an earthly president would be the most protected person on the planet. They are the most protected people on the planet. Jesus divests himself of protection. He gets rid of it. His disciples leave. He needs no security. In fact, throughout his ministry, he tells his disciples, don't stop the children from coming to me. Let them come to me. His disciples run off. And he doesn't command them to stay. They run off and he allows them to leave. He allows himself to be beaten and persecuted and tortured. He came to be the suffering servant. There's a quote by James Stewart, not the actor, different person, minister. says this, It is a glorious phrase, he led captivity captive. The very triumphs of his foes, it means, he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to a tree, not knowing that by the very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the city gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment, they were lifting up the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. 
They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. But now we need to really consider how do we respond to this? What is our response to this passage? What do we do with it? I mean, inevitably, when we get to any particular passage in the Scriptures, especially one like this, we have to ask, well, what do we do with it? Do you not, when you're sitting on your couch or your chair in the morning and you're reading your Bible and you read a story like this, maybe just a few verses, don't you get up and you go, all right, well, that happened, I guess. And you think to yourself, well, what am I supposed to do with it? You kind of want Matthew to say, therefore, reader, this is what I want you to do with that. This is what I, where I want you to go with that. Here's a brief story about how Jesus suffered. And is it just good for me to read? Is it one of those ones that I just say, well, I guess what Jesus predicted came to be true. He's true to his promise. Maybe it's just for my information. Is, is it the author convincing me? You, do you see how much Jesus loves you? This is how he suffered for you. Now, all of those things are true. And certainly all of those things are communicated in the text, I think. But I don't think that's Matthew's main objectives here. Well, how do we know that? Well, because from the beginning of the gospel, he has been convincing you that Jesus is king. And so don't think that this passage is him abandoning that message all of a sudden to just remind you that Jesus is true to his word or that he loves you. Those things being true, of course, he's still convincing you of Jesus' kingship. His agenda seems to be to move you in the opposite direction of the Roman soldiers. That having read the whole gospel, you now get to this scene and you go, what were they thinking? Were they not there when he multiplied the bread for the 5,000? Were they not there when he opened the eyes of the blind? Maybe these Roman soldiers haven't heard. Imagine you're reading this for the first time, and you've come across all of those stories of Jesus' kingship. Are you not now at the very end of this passage going, these people are lunatics? In high school, I remember taking a, a photojournalism class, which was, hold your breaths here, film photography. Shocking, I know. He doesn't look that old. He looks so young and full of life. Yes, film photography. I didn't even know anyone who owned a digital camera at that time. It wasn't really a thing. And so you got 24 pictures. That was all you got. If you didn't get it then in the 24 pictures, well, you're out of luck, okay? And then when you took the pictures, you didn't even really know what you had. You had to figure it out eventually. And even if you did take really wonderful pictures, there's always a chance that in the dark room something could go wrong. And, well, there went your beautiful pieces of art, okay? So you had to go, you had to take the 24 pictures, and you, remember you wound them up, and you took the film, you finally could open the back. The Lord help you if that back opened up before you wound the film. And so you wound the film, you got it in the little canister, and then you got inside the dark room, and you had the little rotating door. Do you remember this? If anybody ever been there, you walk in, and you blindly have to make sure you don't stumble across anything, feel your way to the table, get a hold of all your tools, feed your film through that little canister. You remember this? And you had to do this, and it wound around the canister. The film couldn't touch each other. It had to be layered just so. You put it in the can, and you, you 
screwed it on really tight so no light could get in, and then you dumped a whole bunch of chemicals in there, and you kind of waited for it all to process, and you didn't want to leave it in too long, but don't take it out too early either. It's got to be just perfect. And then what came out of this was what we called a photo negative. I'm educating some people, and some people are like, get on with it. I get it. But you have this photo negative, and you remember these? You look up at the photo negative, and it's kind of your picture, but it also doesn't tell you what your picture is really going to look like. All the colors of the picture have been flipped backwards. Well, this is certainly what it should look like, I think, but the colors are, are all backwards. They're not, they're not true to real life. They're not what I took. But then... If you put the, fo- the, the negatives through the little thing that kind of looked like a film projector and you'd shown the light through them, they hit the photo paper and they began to process a photo that actually looked like the one you took. Even though the colors are totally astray, they're, they're not right, when it hits the photo paper and begins to develop the actual photo, what the negative produces when the light shines through it is true to life. This is what I actually took. We've been through the entire gospel of Matthew, hearing nothing but Jesus is king. And here's how he is proving his kingship. Here's what his kingdom is going to be like. We've heard here who isn't is in the kingdom. Here's who is in the kingdom. We've heard all of these things and more about the kingdom. It's been nothing but kingdom, 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 kingdom. And we've seen alongside that, that the world is flipped upside down from the kingdom. It is completely different from the kingdom. It has a a totally different set of values. It's not at all, it's like the kingdom, but not really like the kingdom. It's like the kingdom, but all the colors look like a photo negative of what the kingdom actually is. We have community, but it's all jacked up. We have beauty, but it's all jacked up. We have truth, but it's also got sin all over it. What we're seeing here in response to the true king of the universe come forward is what happens when sinful men encounter the real God of the universe. How do they respond? How does our photonegative world respond to Christ, who is the true depiction of God? What happens? this right here. That's what it's displaying. This is what happens. They put a scepter in his hand. They kneel in worship. They say, hail king of the Jews. But the only tone that they can muster is mocking. That's the only way they can do it. What we're looking at is the photo negative of the true worship of Jesus. What does it lack then? What it lacks is the light of truth, the light of the Spirit to shine through it. And when it does, we actually see a genuine depiction of worship. Look just a few verses later in verse 54. This is outside of our passage. We're not going to get to it for a couple weeks, but look at 2754. This is at the cross. He says this, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
Now, what happened? Notice that Matthew tells us it was a centurion. Well, there were other people there. He doesn't name them. He even says there were other people there. But he says the centurion. Why does he call out the centurion? Because you just saw a few verses earlier, the same group of Roman soldiers mocking him. Now what has happened? Now the light of the truth of Christ has actually shone on them. And what is their response? But a photorealistic depiction of worship of Christ. Truly he was the Son of God. What if the demonstrations that are made here by the people, the Roman soldiers, were made by people who actually believed in Jesus? What, what would be the result if Jesus was led before a cohort of Roman soldiers and they all truly believed he was the Son of God in that moment? What would happen? The crown wouldn't be a crown of thorns. It would be a legitimate crown. The scepter wouldn't be a reed it would be a legitimate scepter. It wouldn't be spit coming from their mouths. It would be praise and adoration. It's a photo negative of the reality. What Matthew is persuading us to, your version of worship should look like the photorealistic depiction of worship of the true king of the universe. If Matthew is then writing to a community of people who actually believe that this is Jesus, what does our worship look like then on Sunday morning? That's the question that we're left with at the end of this. How is your worship, believer, disciple, different from theirs? How is it true to life? How is it giving to him what he really is worth? How is your depiction of his worth and his honor and his glory displayed? The soldiers clothe him in makeshift regal attire as a way of mocking him. But if the light of the Holy Spirit were to shine through that photo negative, it would create a picture of people coming to the true Son of God and honoring him with their mouths and their hearts. So the author of Hebrews, in talking about it this way, um, about the way we should honor Christ, says this in, in Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So then the question to us is, do we find sin pleasing? Is that something that we continue to go after and pursue time and time again? And then come in here as if gathering together with a body, singing praises is going to be some good luck charm to rub off all the sinful enchantments that we engage in outside here? Or is our desire, honestly, to move away from sin and move toward Christ. Perhaps you don't believe in Jesus. Perhaps there's some in here that might not believe in Jesus. And, and, you, and you, you come in here maybe as if being here is going to gain you some sort of credit in eternity. The reality is that it's, it's not. 
Because when you come in here, you're not engaging him as the true Christ, who is the Savior of the world. The beating that he's taken, he's taken for you. It's the beating that you deserved. And he's taken it in your place because here he's suffering the wrath of God. He's not just at the hands of men. He's suffering the wrath of God on your behalf. But if you come in here as if the, just being here in this place is going to merit you something in eternity, I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not going to gain you those things. It's only by actually acknowledging the true Christ for who he is. The photorealistic depiction of Christ. That's, that's it. In the photo-negative depiction, these soldiers kneel before him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. But if the Spirit of God came into those soldiers, how would it transform the praise? There's an awe and wonder that should transform our worship as we come into this place. I am amazed that worship in the modern culture that we are in is bent on pursuing an emotional experience that we're hoping would drive us to an appreciation of what Christ has done. That's not worship. It's a photo-negative version of worship. It's a smoke and lights version of worship, and it's solely built for your entertainment. Do you realize that? So much of the criticism of worship services, people that walk out go, yeah, it's kind of boring. You realize that's the, the root of the criticism? Is that it was boring? Imagine what passes for worship in our churches today. It's strictly entertainment. It's got to be the songs that you like and presented in the way that you like them so that you'll be engaged from beginning to end. That is not the point of our gathering together. What would happen if we were actually convinced that this person who was the God-man who came to suffer on our behalf died for us and rose on the third day so that we might have eternal life? What if we were convinced that it was only by that that our lives had any meaning whatsoever? How would it transform your worship? But then one more thing don't forget, in addition to our honor transformed, our praise transformed, Matthew's also wanting to challenge us on our pursuit of Christ. In the middle of this book, Jesus challenges his would-be disciples. In chapter 16, verse 24, he says, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let, I'm just going to warn you, this gets gruesome. Let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He left us with his same spirit so that we too might endure while the world is turned upside down around us, that we might live as people of light in the midst of a photonegative world. You realize that? And what that means is it might come about 
that we are actually tormented because of him. We're actually persecuted. Could mean fired from a job. Could mean beaten and flogged in the streets. And we're actually to follow him. Do you know what he means when he says, take up your cross and follow me? He means be beaten without worrying about what you're going to say. Are you suffering at the hands of men? Consider Jesus and endure. Is ministry to others sapping you of energy? Consider Jesus and endure. Are you tempted to fight with others, particularly others in the body? Consider Jesus, resist the devil, and endure. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to take up our cross and follow him. It actually means suffering in this exact way. And so Matthew, in addition to showing us, we don't want to praise Jesus like that. We want to praise Jesus as the true king. He's also challenging us to follow him and emulate his attitude, his same spirit, as we go through this photonegative world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do this in us, that you would produce in us the kind of attitude that we see here in Christ. You would give us the kind of patience and endurance that it takes to make it to the end. That you would also convince our hearts of the truth of what we're reading here. A, a, a passage that we've read probably a billion times. I pray that you would help us to see it with fresh eyes and really think about what's going on here. That you would instead turn our hearts in the worship, in the praise of your glorious grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.